Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. How is your career going? <laughs> it's, it's, this last what was it, is it like a year since I spoke to you last? Has it been that? To, it's not been that long. Uh, with Kashuta. Yeah, we did. We did. We did one with Alex, didn't we? But but the first one's got to be like a year ago now. Or it's more than a year. Long. Anyway, it's, it's last year has been kind of a wild ride. Um, I mean, in a way, it hasn't. You know, I've just been sat in this room mostly. Uh, writing stuff and doing performances well do, doing doing mum stuff um and occasionally well I, I turned up in florida that was that was an outing that was an experience what were you doing in florida i went to natcon did i not tell you did i did I not hear that I, I spoke at the national conservatism conference it was wild okay wait w- like international or national so you're talking a bunch uh, of americans then yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a, a conference of um, all the, all the, all the, yeah, all the, the, the kind of intellectual wing of, of Trumpism. Mm-hmm. You know, some people might say that's a contradiction in terms. I disagree, but I don't really, I, I try not to use the T word or discuss the, the T word or really get involved in any of that stuff if I can avoid it. Okay. So if, My, if you take Trump out of the equation, what do we have left? <laughs> it's a good question. Um, I think you're you're probably better qualified to answer it than I am, to be honest. Um, I mean, I'm I'm a far distant observer of what's going on in your country. And it seems to me that people on your side of the pond are kind of losing their minds a bit, perhaps. And you're yeah. not. Um. Well, I don't know. There are there are, there are loony factions, but on the whole, um, I don't know. I don't know. But I mean, rainy fascist island is kind of mostly okay. I think. You know, in some respects, at least. I mean, I live in I live in small town Britain, and it's it's sort of all right here. Um, I don't feel like we're in a sort of unhinged state of political polarization. You know, it sort of creeps into everyday life a little bit sometimes, but not not massively. Um, you know, I, I line up at the school gate with other mums. We don't talk politics. We talk about our kids. Um, you know, I've, I'm sure people have different opinions about stuff, but um, you know, people people don't get cancelled in my ordinary life. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's I mean, really difficult to parse. Uh, insane about COVID as well, or at least your your kind of your your Zoom your your laptop class seems to have lost its marbles collectively about COVID, and sort of tried to turn it into a sort of a new kind of purity regime. You know, well, you... really extreme. Like the the I don't know. The, you just don't see that so much over here. It's a lot more kind of moderate. You know, we don't really have vaccine politics. Everyone just went and got the vaccine. Okay. Um, you know, as a result, we haven't had mandates. Um, they've just they've just uh, repealed all of the COVID restrictions. You know, it's it's, all, it's over in Britain. Everyone's like, well, you know, a few people are complaining, but for the whole part, for the most part, it's, it's going. I hope, touch wood. But yeah, the, we, we, the, there's a chance that the lunacy might be over. But there are some parts of the world, notably Canada, 
where it seems like the, the, the more, the less intense the pandemic gets, the more intense pandemic discourse gets. And I don't really understand what's going on there, but that, that's definitely a thing. Canada is, uh, if you, if you take, uh, take America and you call us crazy, then you, you have Canada, which is basically America without Trump or any, any, anything from the right. Uh, and Trump's basically a Clintonian Democrat. If you look at his actual policies, other than the WWE or WWF branding and, and, um, pugilist rhetoric in the sheets and the actual, when it gets down to business, he's just wheeling and dealing and going for old, old style American exceptionalism. But he, uh, I don't know why people had such a strong reaction to him other than it was not in the best interests of the elite managerial class to have somebody, uh, that wasn't a part of the regime, Obama, Clinton, Bush, all perpetuating all that stuff so Doesn't so what do you think sense. is going to happen I'm, really, I'm curious to know what it looks like from where you're sitting I mean, what's what's coming down the pipe um, politics wise in the next couple of years it is, is going to be wild I'm really kind of my my worst best case scenario is that Clinton and Trump run against each other again <laughs> it, <laughs> it, it's so great but having uh, Kamala and Clinton duke it out for the the next uh, Democratic slot will be interesting. But I think Kamala is going to be sidelined. She already is. I don't know. So it, it's wide open what the Democrats are going to do because their current head of state or figurehead, insofar as he has a head and is uh, able to maintain a presidential figure, is not going to last. I'm surprised he lasted a year already. So we'll see what happens. And I, I can't tell what's astroturfed, what's inflated, and what's actually authentic when you talk about American political discourse. It's really difficult to parse that. Yeah, I, I, I wonder sometimes whether it's just me being an outsider that makes that difficult to parse, or whether it's just the same for everybody. I mean, it's a, I mean, you guys leave your... <laughs> it's like you, you mic yourself up and then have a sort of massive collective marital argument with the microphone still on and broadcasting to the entire world. So we get... <laughs> We we get the backwash loud and clear, um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it's it's never completely clear to me whether I'm just it makes no sense to me because I'm an outsider or it just makes no sense. I, I don't know. It's just kind of chaos, which which could be fecund, it could be generative, uh, but it's been pretty destructive for the last few years uh, with regard to activism kind of leaking into every th major endeavor uh, or institution of our political arena. But speaking of ideas. I'm curious, from your point of view, what conservative means. What does that actually mean? <laughs> is it not liberal? Is that what it means? Is it defined purely as a reactionary movement? Or is it has some sort of positive circling back around to traditional values and then re renovating them some way to make them adaptive to the present state? I think that's the idea. The uh, whether, whether that's kind of workable or not uh, is the sort of second... Second, I suppose those are the two. Those are the two questions. You know, what three maybe? You know, there's what 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 has conservatism? You know, what what's the conservative tradition? Um, you know, is that workable now? Um, or you know, as Sara Bakhmari might have put it, just a way of losing more slowly. Um, you know, and is it? You know, what what's the prognosis for that that kind of dialectic going forward? 
Um, I mean, there are many, many, many people better informed on political theory and the conservative intellectual tradition than me, who you might usefully ask this question to. I mean, in as Brit and British and American traditions differ considerably as well, um, and that's important to grasp. Um, I mean, for one thing, we have a con constitutional monarchy, which makes a big difference, you know, at a very fundamental conceptual level. And we don't have a constitution, which also makes an, a key difference at a fundamental conceptual level. You know, in a sense, you guys are already in hot to a series of liberal presumptions from the word go. So perhaps the, the Ahmari accusation makes more sense from where you're sitting than from where I'm sitting. Hmm. You know, it's, there's, well, you know, you know, if you've got a thousand plus years of stuff that might or might not be worth conserving, that's a different conversation than if you're if you're constantly going back to have a look, have a look at the papers that were written by the founding fathers and you know a few centuries ago, you know th this isn't a competition. It's just to say that puts you in that, that gives you a different set of parameters for thinking about what it is you're trying to conserve and why. Mm -hmm. And and as far as I can make out from the from an American point of view, once you start extending that tradition back into the the various migrant origins of the various peoples who came together to compose the United States, then you're into some quite sensitive territory, you know, in terms of, you know, ethnic conflicts and, you know, colonial history and just, just you, the, the really, the really volatile stuff. So I suspect that you, most, most people don't like arguing constantly. And so you, you, just, you just draw a line at, okay, this is where it started and everything else before that, we just don't really talk about. Well, I mean, that, this is my sense, again, as an outsider. Um, and it's and it's a different it's a different picture altogether in the UK. I mean, our equivalent Brand Zero. Uh, you're 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 not going to get the long answer. On. Oh, we're, are we going to Magna Carta? Are we going to somewhere to Chaucer? <laughs> are we going back to Caesar landing on the shores or, or I mean, Beowulf? You, can go, you you could go all the way back to I, I don't know, probably go back to William the Conqueror if you really wanted to. But I, I mean, the people there are still people who you know more or less ironically joke about how we should actually just kick out the Normans, and that was where it all started to go wrong. And you can make that case if you really want to. Um, but but no, I was actually going to say uh, Grand Zero in sort of quasi-constitutional terms from a British point of view is probably um, 16, I think it's 1689, 1688, um, was, was when we kicked, out, we kicked out the last absolute monarch and installed a constitutional monarch. Because at that point, um, at that point we had, uh, we, we had a sort of absolutist ruler in theory, but in practice, the absolutist ruler was, sub, was always subject to parliament. And so it, it is this sort of very strange, um, is this strange paradoxical um, holding in balance of it, it, it's a way of holding in balance the fact that you know politics can't ever be completely democratic you know you sort of need a you need a bit of absolutist grit in the oyster because otherwise the whole thing just very easily teeters over into tyranny at least in my view um, I mean you only have to look at what happened in the reign of terror um, after after the French Revolution and see that you know egalitarian idealistic uh, revolutions of the people can very quickly go pear-shaped. Um, and if there's if there's one thing which I think sums up the sort of British pragmatism, which is subsequently I think being expressed in conservatism, British the British form of conservatism, it's that okay we're going to we're, we're going to conserve a little bit of autocracy in the interests of being mostly democratic, and just coming up with a messy solution like that that actually kind of works in practice. Hmm. I think that's that's just a very English way of doing it. Um, you know, it's it doesn't it doesn't make sense from a high theory point of view, um, but but from from the point of, from a sort of holistic point of view of history and human nature and just whoever it is you're arguing with at that point, it kind of works. And after that, you, people just get used to it.
Okay. You know, and so so in as much as there's an, there's an English conservative tradition, I would say I would characterize it like that. It's stuff that stuff that people sort of cobbled together because it worked, and it's sort of and to the extent that it carries on working, people carry on doing it. And once that sort of tips over into becoming grand unifying theories about how the world ought to work, it starts to go a bit, uh, starts to not not be quite as effective. And I suppose you know, in as much as you know, to, to address. <laughs> I warned you this is going to be the long answer. Um, you know, if you're, what do I think is the prognosis for that going forward? Um, Sorab thinks that conservatism has become just a way of losing more slowly um, because it, he thinks it's in hock to too many of the presumptions of liberalism, which is just relentlessly hungry and determined to liquefy everything. And therefore, you know, if you're conservative, all you're, all you're doing is standing athwart history, yelling stop. But if you've already signed up to a belief in history and progress, then you're screwed, basically. And all you can ever really do is slow it down and sort of wish wish for a return to a period five minutes before uh, whatever it is that's happening right now. <laughs> so, so that's the that's the kind of post-liberal critique of, of conservatism as a stance. Yeah. Um, the jury's out for me on whether that makes whether that's that's all there is um i mean i I've, I've sort of i've joked and played and um experimented with the phrase reactionary feminist over mm -hmm. the last year um partly just because it's it's fun uh, it's a it's a nice phrase to play with um but also also as a sort of placeholder for the possibility that in in fact conservatism is toast um and if that's true and I'm not completely certain what I think about this yet. If it's true, it's because the entire liberal settlement is toast, because that was an effect of the industrial era and to an extent the print era as well. And we've now left the industrial era for the digital era. And in the process, we've also left the print era. Um, and the whole, prem you know, the most of the founding, founding premises of liberalism, you know, the marketplace of ideas and free equal debate and the autonomous subject and so on and so forth, you know, that whole nexus of ideas, the sort of classical liberal ones, um, are that they're impossible to sustain except in a sort of semi-industrial print culture, you know, in the in in the in the internet, in in a discourse that's structured by people reading off the internet rather than reading out of books or pamphlets or whatever. It just doesn't work anymore. There's there's too much information. There's too much information. The information is too networked. People watch memes evolving live in real, pretty much in real time. You can see a meme develop, you know, at sort of at warp speed on the internet over the course of 24 hours. Um, and it's just, it's just not possible to hold to the ideas of a stable, objective world um, that, that you need you know, in order to sustain the the, the kind of the the, the framing uh, premises of the liberal subject, so the whole the whole edifice of liberalism has been is is being rotted from the inside by by its own invention, in the internet. Um, and would you um, would you insert postmodernism into there, like the postmodern uh, postmodern yes. uh, yeah, thinking process? And is there things to take from postmodernism to right? Kind absolutely, of absolutely. I mean, in a sense. You know, it's it's hard to say what came first, um, but they've so they've certainly acted as an accelerant for one another. Um, you know, that way of thinking and this form of technology. You know, Jeff Schulenberger is great on this. You know, taking you know, doing taking a sort of materialist analysis of the sort of the the, the kind of post-truth critique, um, you know, rather and and saying you know you, you can you can if you you can take the material conditions of the 20th century and and the scientific discourse and and you you can put those pieces together that is Jeff's argument and and come up with 
postmodernism being kind of inescapable, the, the inescapable upshot of that, you know, the sort of stance of, of chronic uh, scepticism, where you just don't believe that anything is real anymore. I mean, he, he, he sees that as just being the sort of, you know, the, the logical endpoint of, of, of a bunch of stuff that now believes itself. You know, it, it all gets very recursive at this point. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I catch myself, too. I even uh, brought that up in this conversation. What's going to happen? It, it, I don't know to what degree. Is it madness or is it? OK, I don't know to what degree America is going mad and to what degree we're simulation. We're simulating madness because we don't have anything better to do. And to what degree I should take that madness seriously, because when I go and I interact with my very small community, we're just trying to get through the day. Right. And you, know, you see these ideas kind of leak in, you know, and you say, well, OK, uh, gender stuff. Wh- wh- where is that going to lead? Uh, all these different topics. uh you guys don't have to deal with race, but, um, yeah, the madness of America is, I don't know to what degree we can take it seriously and to what degree I can assemble my stance toward it without just kind of disregarding the madness and trying to be sane in a mad world or trying to be uh, crazy. A lot, a lot in the advice that people, people get, you know, just be normal, go outside, touch grass. <laughs> There's a lot in that. Yeah. 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 The, you know, these these things become easier easier to bear or easier to kind of put in their place to the extent that we remember we actually remember to do that. You know, I do I do a lot of long distance running with with with, with that aim partly. What's your age. what's your mile time at this point? Uh, I mean, it depends on on road or off. Okay. And I run kilometer splits rather than miles, <laughs> so that oh, that yeah. kind of. But, but I, I ran my first marathon over the last year, and I I got four oh four. If that gives you an idea. Uh, marathon's a uh, hundred kilometers. How many 20, kilometers? Twenty six. Uh, Twenty six point two miles. Okay. I did okay. four hours, four minutes. So that gives you an idea. Over over distance. Um, I do. I can run six miles in about fifty five minutes. So not. I'm, I'm not fast. I, I just like it. It's like doing a nice country walk on fast forward. <laughs> hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May seventeenth. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something. Yeah, I, I don't really know what kind of politics will emerge to make sense, you know, that, that, that will make sense to the kind of subjects that are emerging now out of the internet. Are you talking uh, about subjects as in the individuals or subjects as in topics? Subjects as in, subjects as in the, the conceptions people have of what, what a person is. Yeah. If, the, if you understand what I mean. Because mm-hmm. um, the, the internet doesn't just change, it doesn't just change how we relate to one another. I mean, I'm here, I'm sat here in Britain talking to you, you know, several thousand miles away. You know, that's kind of mind-blowing. It's in itself, and I'm looking at a simulacrum of your face. You know, and all of these things, cumulatively, they, they, they shift. They make great and small adjustments in how, how people think about, how people understand what a person is. And I think it's, it's no coincidence. I'm sure I've mentioned this before. I've written about this. It's no coincidence that transgender identities or these ideas, that the, the idea that identity can be completely unmoored from embodiment has has just mushroomed in conjunction with the internet because if you you know if you give a, a medium to 
to a whole bunch of, ch- of people, children, really, um, where which enables them to conduct almost all of their social life online with no reference to their body whatsoever, um, and give, and let them let them curate um, self presentations, you know, which can be updated at the click of a button, you know, just by changing your avatar picture. You know, why why would you be surprised if they then imagine they can edit their meat avatars as well? You know, it's kind of a no brainer. They would think of their self selfhood as being separable from their embodied. Uh, self and and lots of them are going to conclude if they're actually just unhappy in their physical selves for whatever reason that that maybe the solution is to is to edit their meat avatar and why why would you not want to do that and i can also see when you look at it from that point of view how how grossly unfair it must seem that a bunch of middle-aged women like me are coming along and saying well no actually you can't do that you know it doesn't sound like i'm reminding them about the kind of the parameters, the, the the actual parameters of reality, which can't really be argued with very easily. It sounds like I'm I'm just mummy denying them something for no reason. And it's just really just mean and unfair of me. <laughs> I don't I don't know what you do with that. But but I think a lot of the sort of mutual incomprehension is to do with people with the, the, the people who've who've grown up with that um disembodied selfhood paradigm and and the often older people who are saying well no actually that that doesn't it doesn't work and particularly older women are saying it doesn't work well are you saying that because you're just behind the times or because you have some sort of insight benjamin i've been very online for 20 i've been extremely online for 20 years (laughs) you know i was i was fully signed up to all of this stuff um i mean i'm probably you know i'm I'm not the first generation to be extremely online but i'm I'm among i'm the first generation to be extremely online in the mass mass social media age um, you know, I've had plenty of time to think about these things, and I've, I've run through most of these um, responses to the to to what what it means to be a, a person socialising online. Um, I'm also old. I've had children. Um, I've had plenty of time to think about <laughs> about the fact that um, you know nothing nukes mind-body dualism more than experiencing PMS. You know, for 25 years in my case, longer, 30. Um, you know, 30 years of PMS gives you plenty of time to reflect on. Um, the fact that actually your body affects the way you, the, the way you look at the world and vice versa. Um, you know the, these things become more obvious as you get older, and you know really nothing nothing scrambles any idea of mind-body dualism more dramatically than having a child. Um, it, I mean, I could go I could go into that and give you chapter and verse on that, but but I, I, I'm digressing a bit from the point, which is that older women are pushing back against this stuff because we just we, we just have a much more direct experience i think of it being not true um and it's it's frustrating to find okay, that dismissed not true fe- or not feasible and and it, can technology take care of that feasibility no i don't think so um i think you just end up you, you just create new problems you know mind mind and body are not separable full stop you know, okay. there, there, we're never going to be uploading our consciousness into the cloud. It's not going to happen. Yeah, you know, that's not how brains. That's not how minds work. It's not what minds are. Minds so aren't. far, I mean, no, no, no. Yeah. It, it just isn't. It's not. It's it's not how. It's it's not what minds are. You know, they minds are the neurons. You take away. You know, mind, minds aren't, aren't a sort of you know a form of information that's flowing through a kind of meat network that we don't fully understand well enough to replicate yet. They are the new minds are the neurons. Um, you take away the neurons and upload it into the cloud. It's not a mind anymore. I don't know. Maybe you can upload that data, but it'll be something else. It won't be mind. Yeah. 
we're never going to mi- up- upload human minds into the cloud and have them still be human minds. And even if we could upload all of that information, you take away the embodiment and, you know, do you still even really have a human mind? I mean, these are these are sort of these are the hard problems of consciousness that, you know, you have to be much cleverer than me to kind of try and get to grips with. But it seems pretty obvious to me that, you know, who I am is, is structured to an almost, it's almost completely structured by the shape I am. Um, and that this idea that we can disaggregate mind from body, um, and furthermore that body is inferior to mind and ought to be subject to its every dictate, I think is deeply destructive. You know, in all in all kinds of, and it has it has negative knock-on effects in all all sorts of directions. But I mean, the most the most immediate and upsetting one from where I'm sitting is just watching watching adolescents mutilate their bodies, particularly young women, because it's just intolerable trying to be a young woman in the world at the moment. And I watch I watch young women, you know, sign, signing up to butcher themselves in this way or that, you know, in the sincere belief that it's going to make life better. And sometimes sometimes it kind of works out all right for them. But then there's this growing chorus of detransitioners who I look at them and I think, my God, well, you know, what have they allowed you to do? And these, these poor women are going to have to live with um, five o'clock shadow and permanent sterility and chest scars and just you know, no no normal physiological function and being on HRT from the age of you know, 22 or something for the rest of their lives. And it's horrific. Um, and it's all, it's all downstream of believing that we can separate minds from bodies, which is just false. Okay, maybe that's where this conservatism begins then. If you, if you build your conservatism on that, maybe you have something to stand on. Instead of it's not reactionary and it's ancient, so it is going back to that. But you also have this more research and more science. Science can get along with that. Science can actually function in that liberal. The liberal subject can, as long as they uh, allow themselves to be subject to that, uh, then liberalism on some form can happen, or or at least conservatism has some sort of place to go and return to. Maybe. It's possible. I mean, I, I'm I'm not at all sure that you and I mean the same thing by reactionary. Well, that's probably the beauty of the word. Now, you, I mostly use it as a placeholder for the fact that I don't believe in progress. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I I don't mean it like you're alt right or uh, you're some sort of ethno uh, essentialist or anything like that. I still don't know what that word actually, means. The, the guys who the guys who believe in ethno ethno nationalism or whatever are actually kind of quite progressive. You know, they see, they see, they see all of that stuff as being, um, you know, radical revolutionary stuff that they need to bring about in order to, um, in in order to affect a, a higher and more enlightened state of humanity. You know, which is, in its own in its own funny way, it's quite it's quite sort of French Revolution. Hmm. You know, to me, they have more in common with the progressives. You know, they've got their they've got their ideology, which they want to sort of jackboot down on the world. Um, and some of it, some of it looks to me like it speaks to human nature and some of it really doesn't um so i yeah i don't know i think i think sort of right-wing right-wing racist progressivism is in the mail um and it and it will be structurally not dissimilar to the progressivism that we currently have um i don't i don't really i don't really consider myself to be on pulling in the same direction as those guys though that's that's not my not my jam mm-hmm. Uh, but is there a concept, you, you say that you don't really believe or you're not sure that progress exists. Is there a functioning sort of enlightenment or 
um, responsibility that the subject has to overstand their physical nature, to control that, to uh, incorporate traditions or practices or habits of mind that subject the body to the will? Uh, is, is that kind of functioning uh, alongside it? And also being a woman with that PMS thing that you've suffered and the child rearing thing that kind of changes things for me. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around how you and, and Erica Bakaliochi and, and others, other females, uh, conservative females, if that's the right term, are trying to reorient the liberal project around care and uh, not around autonomy centrally, but around uh, community or, or something other than that that doesn't go in a Marxist communalism direction. Yeah, Erica's, Erica's book, I think, is tremendously important as a sort of revisionist historiography of the feminist movement. I've, I've been mining her endnotes gratefully and, and quite thoroughly for my own writing project, which is underway at the moment. Uh, the working title is Feminism Against Progress. As you might do. Um, and it's, it, it picks up on some of the same themes as Erica's work in that, you know, I'm, I'm arguing that feminism as we understand it is a response to the industrial age. Because prior to, you know, a central, a central component of feminism is about trying to get to grips with how women navigate the competing demands of family and work. You know, that, that's, a, that's been a central feminist preoccupation from the mm -hmm. word go. Um, and that, and that, just, that just wasn't a problem to the same extent prior, prior to the industrial age, because most work happened in, in households. So mm -hmm. it just, the, the, the central, the balancing work and family thing just wasn't, wasn't really a thing until we invented the workplace. And the workplace is, is you know, to a significant extent, an artifact of the industrial era. Um, and one, one, one thing which, one trend which I think is interesting is the extent to which virtualization of work actually reverses that again. And at least for some people, at least for the laptop classes, you know, and so this is, to be clear, this is not the case for all occupations by any stretch. For the laptop classes, that actually opens up the possibility of returning to a sort of 21st century version of productive households on a much more sort of 14th century model. And some of the, some of the most interesting, um, some of the, some of the most interesting young American conservatives, by which I mean under under 25 or under 30, are the ones who are who are trying who, who are looking to create a life which is half half remote work and half homesteading, and that that's a thing now. That's where people are more and more more and more kids are trying to do that. You know, trying to find a patch of land where they can grow their own vegetables, and then and then the other half of the time they mine Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. um, that that's a whole of the subculture, which I think has the potential to get much bigger. I mean, it's obviously not going to be for everybody because mm -hmm. there are some occupations that doesn't fit. But for obvious reasons, that's much more compatible with, you know, a much more integrated professional and family life. You know, I mean, you can, you, there's a great deal more you can do uh, with kids underfoot if you're able to work flexibly from a laptop like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's so that's one. That's one thing that I see. That's one sort of positive development I see coming coming out the other end of the industrial era. Um, but where where Erica Erica's work and mine converge, or you know, one one of her themes which I find interesting and also very challenging, is her argument that in in you know, feminism has. I mean, I'm paraphrasing paraphrasing quite brutally here because her, her book is nuanced and very scholarly. Um, but as I as I read it, 
um, her argument is that there are there are there are sort of two two poles, two themes that um, that recur throughout early arguments over how we navigate work and family as females, um, and and one of them. One, one, of the, one of them was sort of oriented around care and domestic life and family life, and the other was about in individual autonomy and sort of emancipation of the self from from all of all surrounding relationships. Yeah. And these the back and forth between those two those two poles is a tension which is there in in feminist thinking and feminist debate pretty much from the word go from the 18th century onwards. Um, you know this is this is not a new argument and. And one of one of the ways I think Erica's work is interesting is because she her, her take is that 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 tension that 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 back and forth that tension is no longer there within the feminist movement because it was won conclusively by Team Freedom when abortion was legalised because in a sense if one, once you've once you've accepted as a sort of foundational premise of your movement that in order to be in order to have access to personhood on the same terms as men, you you need to be entitled to kill your own unborn child. Um, in a you you have you have conclusively come down on the side of autonomy against dependency. You know there's there's just no other way of slicing. You know once you've entrenched that in law, your your legal system has come down has come down definitively on the side of uh, of autonomy. You know, of course, that's nuanced by you know different qualifications on on the legislation in different geographies and so on. But as a fundamental principle, um, I, I find I find that argument difficult to disagree with. You know what that means in policy terms, or what that means in where you go with that as a feminist. I don't know yet. This is something I'm still wrestling with. But I find I, I find it I find her argument persuasive um, in, in a way which has challenged me deeply. Actually, reading that, thinking about it over the last year. How so? What What are some of the things that you've had to revise about your previous well, point of view? Well, I, I mean, I've always been I've always been very much in the safe, legal, and rare camp, um, you know. But but it, it never never occurred to me that actually maybe it just shouldn't be a thing. But but I, but at the same time, I've always wrestled with and been very frustrated by um, the sense that care and dependency are tremendously important values and tremendously undervalued values. Um, and that actually a, a, a positive, a, a constructive um, case for women that wasn't just trying to be trying to be men on the same, try, trying to be people on the same terms as men, just just signing up to the male default, um, ought to have a go at revalor, you know, trying trying to find arguments for revalorizing care, um, mm -hmm. and 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 just just bringing bringing those two things into collision with one another, the possibility that in fact. You know, it's it's logically incoherent to be for care, and also for safe, legal, and rare. Um, I've I found quite difficult. I found quite challenging as a proposition. Hmm. And I I don't know what to do with that yet. You know, that's very much a kind of live live source of reflection for me. Hmm. Mm -hmm. But just sort of like, just stepping stepping back from that to the sort of to the theory. Level. Can there be an enlightened? dependency is 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 enlightenment and emancipation and individualism and freedom and liberty all wrapped up together can we have uh enmeshed enlightenment uh, uh, and i still I mean, have to figure out what i mean by enlightenment but there's something reactive and constructive about a certain mentality that came about in the modern era I mean, I don't see why not. You know, the, 
one of the well, well one of the things I want to argue for um, is that actually the the most con- one of the most constructive things we could do to or we could we could try and do you know in order to repair some of the difficulties but you know repair you know, try and find better ways for men and women to live together is abolishing big romance and bringing back a much more practical medieval idea of what marriage is what do you mean by that let's talk about well, this pre-romantic um <laughs> romance uh, uh, why, why, do, why do I think we should abolish big romance? Um, I mean, people people have always fallen in love with, you know, there have always been people who fell wildly in love with one another. Um, you know, you and Antony and Cleopatra, and, uh, Dido and Aeneas, you know, it all goes all the way back to ancient times. You know, there, there have always been wild, wild, intense love affairs. Um, but it, it wasn't it wasn't usual to choose your life partner on the basis of who you fell wildly in love with yeah, until relatively recently. Um, and one of one of my theses theses is that um, that idea that re- we should really really valorise um, romantic intimacy and mutual regard in that way was a sort of consolation prize which women claimed um, in exchange for for the loss of economic agency that they suffered at the beginning of the industrial era. Um, you know, we talk we talk a big game about feminism having empowered women economically. You know, since since really the 20th century and the re-entry into the workplace. But what that what that misses is the is the immense loss of economic agency which women suffered in the transition to the industrial age. Um, Could you, you know, sketch that for the uh, random passerby? I mean, in in the 14th century. I mean, I, I was actually just writing about this today. Um, I found this great 14th century poem which recounts an argument between a plowman and his wife. I mean, I'll paraphrase, because you, you don't need Middle English on your podcast. But it, it recounts <laughs> an argument <laughs> between a, a plowman and his wife. And he, say, he says to her, you know, you, you, lazy, you lazy bint, you just lie around all day, you know, um, playing with the kids, and your, your work is really easy, and I have to go and toil and sweat in the muddy field and look at a pair of horses' asses all day, etc. And, you know, this is it, my, my life is much harder than yours. And she's like, no, actually... Um, you know, I have to keep an eye on the kids. I have to make cheese. I have to feed the animals. I have to weave cloth. I have to make clothes. I have to grow, tend the garden. Then I have to feed the animals again. Then I have to make, make sure the children don't die by falling in the well. And I also have to get your dinner on the, on the table by the time you get home. So um, next time, how about we swap places and you can try and do all of that stuff and make sure the children don't kill themselves in the process and I'll go out to plough. I mean, the, that, the, that, that's the, the, the poem. The rest of the poem is lost. So we don't know how it worked out in the end. But I'm willing to bet that he burned the dinner. <laughs> yeah, but did she plow the entire field or, or 25 percent of it who knows? who knows who knows how the poem ended but, uh, but i mean I, it's it's a safe bet that it ended with a sort of greater mutual respect for their complementary um and equally yeah. challenging and skilled roles and and the the market value of those two roles were more or less equivalent creating children and running the home is just as valuable as creating the wheat that it wasn't a market society at the time and most exchanges d- didn't take place within a sort of you know a, a financial in they, most things weren't traded for money you know so plenty you know the, the life was full of exchanges and mutual obligations and debts and so on but most okay. of that did, didn't take place under the sign of money you know it took place in terms of i do i do this for you and you do that for me and mm-hmm. um, so it, it's it's difficult to measure but you know the house, the, the family, the family needs clothes to wear. The family also needs um, food on the table. You know, the, of course, they're they're equally necessary because they're equally parts of a subsistence lifestyle. Mm-hmm. 
so that's a so 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 she so so your fourteenth century plowman's wife has has plenty has plenty on her side of the ledger when it comes to what materially um, what materially do am I contribu- contributing to the household um, and but then but that changed when work moved mostly into out of the home and into workplaces um, because somebody still had to look after the kids you know it's all very well doing a bit of spinning or weaving with a toddler underfoot if you're at home. And doing all of those other things as well, and it's a different ball game. If in order to have, in order to do that work, you have to go to a factory several miles away, for a, and clock in and clock out, and the and the machines are big and dangerous, and you can't have toddlers running. It's a completely different ball game. And all of a sudden, you know, you, you're facing a much starker set of decisions about about how you work and in what capacity and what you can meaningfully do. And how you're valued. Right. By and how you're, cultures. Yeah. And so and so of course you know and then you know the the equivalent of the plans. The, the plowman comes home and says, well, you know, Mrs. Wife, what have you been doing all day? Um, and she, she might say, I've been educating the kids. And, you know, I, I sort of I had some I've, 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 I've organized for us to have a nice social, you know, and I, I ordered some new curtains. And I I don't know. Or, or you know, I went and I, I started a committee for for improving the local area. But it's all much more. It's, it's much harder to measure. So. And also, she's not earning any money of her own. And so if her husband turns out to be an asshole, she's in a bind. You know, because you can't, you know, th- this is still a world, you know, say the 19th century where it's, it, you can't get divorced. Um, your husband, your husband has legal power of the children. You're not allowed to own property. Your legal person is subsumed into that of your husband. So if you don't have any economic agency of your own, um, and also your husband is a dick, you, you really have a problem. Um, so, you know, it was not under those, it was not unreasonable for women to start campaigning for property rights and, um, and suffrage under those. And romance. And romance, because if you want your husband to not be an asshole, you want to make sure he loves you. So in a sense, a relationship which was based on pragmatism and, you know, I, I make the cloth and I make the cheese and I look after the animals and you go out there and you plow the fields. You know, to, you can get you can get you can, quite a long way just on the fact that you both have work to do and you're just too busy to think about, you know, did he did he buy me flowers recently? You're just too busy. It's just, you know, whether or whether or not your husband, you know, sent remember to get you a Valentine's card is just less important in in a world like that. But you know, all of a all of a sudden, you know, if you're if you're completely economically on the back foot and you have no political personhood, you know, I think I'd I, I wouldn't want to marry somebody who where I wasn't sure if he loved me or not either. So all so so in a sense big romance big big romance kind of became became really important became much more important for women and you see it in the literature of the time you know a huge amount of of the work of Jane Austen for example is you know those those themes of you know making sure it's not just a relationship based on sex I mean this is the pride and prejudice story isn't it you know Lydia goes off and she just gets really horny and goes off and marries a completely unsuitable young man and then there are other there are other characters in other books who who marry somebody who just turns out to be a cold fish or just not really very nice and you know the relationship between Elizabeth Bennet and Mr Darcy is all about that mutual intellectual respect um, which which serves completely to offset the fact that he actually has all the power economically, but because they have this relationship of mutual love and mutual respect and sort of high moral regard for one another, you know, you you feel like it's probably going to be okay in their case. Hmm. So that's kind of best case. You know, Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy is pretty much kind of ideal best case scenario for how for how life is going to work out for women under those circumstances. And you'd have to erect around that uh, all these courtship 
rituals and uh, yes. litmus tests to see if it's a right partner. Yep. And then you have this entire industry of uh, personality. Hello, just, you know, an entire industry. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, again, that's that's increasingly not, you know, that's increasingly not the world we live in, in the, in the sense that actually i don't often say this but the men's rights activists are kind of have a point when they complain that women are perfectly capable of earning their own money but they still expect big romance because in a way it doesn't make sense uh, by which you mean that uh, by which you think that they mean that uh, these men mean that uh, they shouldn't be held to this more or less impossible standard if that standard was erected uh, in order well, not, to compensate. Just very, very straightforwardly. Um, okay. Why, if if you're not, if 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 you're not kind of dependent and vulnerable in these ways, why are you still expecting me to? go through all of this romantic rigmarole which was premised on which was kind of premised on that being the case i mean it's a there's a slightly back to front way of phrasing it or mm. or you know to, just to put it much more bluntly you know why why should i buy you dinner when you earn more than me you know and it's kind of a fair question mm-hmm. i don't know the answer to that <laughs> and it's a long time since i was dating um but you know the in in, in a sense you know the means you know the means for and the expectations for how people are meant to behave with one another, It'd take a lot longer to change than the material conditions that that serve to structure them in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't know what that looks like in the future. Um, but one one encouraging trend I see in slightly more out, out there corners of um, I don't know experimental experimental very online twenty something culture is you know people are starting to talk about arranged marriages again. And if your if your objective is to put together a productive household then it's not a bad way to go about it because actually what you need in a productive household by which i mean you know one where where the work of um raising children and produce and to perhaps producing food and perhaps or earning money all kind of happens more or less in the same location you know with a collaborative effort by all of the adults living in the house you know on on caretaking and the various other jobs you know in whatever configuration makes sense you know that's that's what I mean by a productive household. And if your if your aim is to have a family life that looks like a productive household, then actually it's what you need is what you what you're looking for in a partner is quite different. In in the sense, you know, you you need shared values. You need a fairly clear understanding of what your common goals are, um, and you and you need a measure of pragmatism, because if, if you're just too busy, if, you know, if if you're gonna if you're gonna send your partner to Coventry for a week because they forgot to buy you a birthday card, then that's kind of a problem, you know, if you've got, if you've got animals. That is this some sort of weird Hallmark uh, movie Chaucherian <laughs> reference or something? No, no, it isn't at all. It's just, I, I'm just picking both, I'm picking cards as a sort of fairly, fairly lighthearted example of the sort of, the, the sort of romantic, sort of romantic gestures, yeah. um, which, which are, which matter a lot to a lot of people, but, but in a sense, in a, you know, I, was just, a, I was, I was riffing on the co- sending somebody to Coventry. I was just wondering if that's a Chaucer, Chaucer oh, reference. Okay. Yeah. Oh, so sending, that's just an uh, English turn of phrase. Okay. Yeah. So it, it so to kind of try to formulate this, if we're, um, premising relationship on, productive household or a productive household that would have to become the conservative ideal or that would be packaged in a what are we conserving what are we building we would have to make an argument maybe now's not the time that a man and a woman or two partners uh, functioning together to produce and raise children and also to make money 
if you you can hang a lot of your hat on that, or you can hang quite a bit of hats on that. And then can I just stick my hand up at this point. So I don't really think of myself as a conservative. Okay, um, but you keep on talking about it. <laughs> You're just conservative adjacent. Is that what's going on? Sorry. Conservative fluid. Is that what's going on? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't know. I, I, okay. I find, I suppose I find uh, you, you, we can argue back and forth about abstractions. I mean, it's, you know, may, maybe maybe if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it actually just is a duck. Okay. Um, and maybe I should stop quibbling well, about it. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of conservatism as some sort of stable, uh, stable societal or stable cultural understanding. That's not premised on progress. That's not premised on. I'm interested in. I, I don't think there's much left to conserve at this point, and I'm, I'm much more interested in the idea of what we might reconstruct. Okay. Um, because I, I really don't. You know, I don't think there's very much left of, of social norms around how people live together, and so there aren't very. There isn't much left of, of norms around family formation, or really anything much at all. Um, and, and given that, I think it, I honestly just think it's a much use, much more useful question. You know, given given where we are now, you know, what, how 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 can we how can we best live together? You know, it's it's pretty wide open. Um, and you know, abolish big romance, I suppose, is is one of the one of the things I might offer on that front. But it's it's more of a reconstruction suggestion than a conservative one as such okay. because the, you know from a from a you know let's let's keep things as they were until five minutes ago the conservative argument okay. is that we should go back to having um breadwinners and stay-at-home mums which to me is just a ridiculous idea you want to go further back you're like well, that's not that's not trad wives are nowhere near trad enough <laughs> they're just they're, they're nowhere they're not trad enough they're they're, they're literally like trad for they it's a very modern idea mm-hmm. the the stay-at-home mum you know, going back to the, we need to go back to the 1450s, not the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And the 1450s, trad wives. Are, you know, I've, I've I've used the term trade wives. You know, they are they are a very different, uh, very very different creature. Mm-hmm. I'd rather I'd, I'd rather see a world of trade wives than trad wives. I mean, if it's your thing and, and yeah. your partner earns enough, fine. You know, you do you. Um, but 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 I think for a, for a majority of women. Um, I seem to remember somebody did some research on this. The statistics suggest that there's maybe 20% of women who just prefer to be stay-at-home mums and not work at all. And there's 20% who just want to go balls out and just spend all of their time on career. And a lot of those women don't have kids. Um, but the remaining 60-odd percent um, would prefer a mixture. And I kind of feel like that that that, that population is is under-discussed um, or under, under-represented in, in the sort of noisiest factions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, that that was kind of raising my curiosity about how do uh, we, uh, what what's the narrative around uh, a woman who accepts care, birth giving, and career? Like, what what is the, how do you make that into a cultural narrative that that can be rallied around? And maybe that's not your uh, intention or your desire to do that, but I'm just trying to say what what is the what's the romance in, of being both and. What's the uh, what's the power of that? What's the greatness of that? And what's the difficulty of that? And well, it seems to be really difficult to sell that. So, what is that about? And it's something that you do. It's kind of your life. You're you're a mother and a thinker and a runner and all these other things. And uh, the, a lot of the story is that you can't have both or something like that. I don't know. Well, I, I, I should say I'm extraordinarily lucky 
in that I, I do my, my occupation is something that I can do from home and I'm, I'm very emphatic about never wanting to work in an office again and that's that's just not the case for all occupations you know, so I'm, I'm very fortunate in that way and it, it, I wouldn't want to suggest that I believe my my template is one that you can just roll out with and to everybody because that's obviously not the case um, but actually I mean the person I know who's smashed it most out of the park when it comes to work-life balance is actually my hairdresser. Um, she's just absolutely nailed it. Um, she she works. She, she's converted their garage into a tiny hair salon with one seat. I mean, in, in every detail, it's a you know, it's got the it, it's got all the kit and it's got the flock wallpaper and the giant mirror. It's got everything. I mean, it's it's been beautifully done. Um, and it's and her commute is what like twelve feet from her front door to her garage and she works there she chooses the hours she wants to she works within school hours or or when her mum is able to babysit or when her husband or um she, and she works the hours she wants to um she has no commute um very few overheads she's and and she has she, she has good time yeah she she earns some money she she ha- she enjoys the social contact and i mean she, she's kind of nailed it and i think um, but can you imagine the brickbats that would be thrown at you if you were to suggest to any sort of, you know, average woman, young woman of average intelligence that actually, you know, if you want to be a mum as well as have a career, you know, you could do worse than being a hairdresser. Can you imagine what would get thrown at you if you suggested that, you know, as though there's something demeaning or inferior about about having what what to me looks like a pretty nice life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that, that's kind of... I don't really, I don't really know what you do about that. Yeah. Um, there's a, you know, the the prejudices and the presumptions about what does or doesn't constitute meaningful work are very entrenched, and they're very they're very biased towards a certain kind of um, you know, a certain kind of person. That's changing so much with the internet and uh, you know, the influencer culture is one thing, which is kind of like you either make it in there or don't. But I wonder to what degree there will be so many other different online-ish careers that are opening up. You learn some code, you do some that from home, you, you do some gig, you learn how to write well, you do marketing, stuff like that. There's so many different other things that are white-collar work. Uh, but again, that's kind of divorced from the work of the body and other industries, too. And that's also classist with people. Somebody's going to have to be the Amazon delivery driver. Somebody's going to have to you know right. package all those things. And, so we get self-driving cars. I mean, you can you, you can drive yourself crazy coming up trying to come up with a universal solution, and I'm not to be yeah. honest, I'm not sure that there is one. Okay. I think it's a it's a category error trying to be universalist in your feminism. You just have to try and you just be be honest about situating yourself wherever you are. Okay. Uh, there are they, you know, the humans are a sexually dimorphic, dimorphic species, but you know what is or isn't in women's interests is so is so contextual. That the same policy could be feminist in one context and anti-feminist in another context. You know, it's it's a, it's not possible to be universalist. But I just and I think it doesn't make sense trying to do that. Okay, but you you wouldn't say that you're not a feminist. You no, I'm, I'm absolutely a feminist. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very much care about. I think women women have political interests. Um, you know, it's difficult to say that we that we have those in any sort of universal sense as a class. But you know, our, our physiology is politically salient you know, in any, in any given context. Um, and it's not, it's not a, you know, it's socially constructed, but it's not a social construct, if you see the distinction. 
I do. I use this thing called English, which is socially constructed. Um, right. But I mean, but but what I mean, what I mean by that is that it's um, you know we we give it you know we give biological sex so we ascribe social meanings to biological sex you know some of which are more or more or less uh loony um but that doesn't mean that that, that you can't you can't then loop that round on to to say that actually that just means biological sex is invented you know this that's obviously not the case <laughs> i don't know they're trying to they're trying to convince the world that i mean that's the that's the that's the prevailing ideology or idiosity right now but uh is there yeah. is there a frustrated with this idea that i get frustrated with this idea that just because something's a social construct that 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 should that that's some sort of great gotcha it isn't of course you know money is a social construct um <laughs> so you know funerals are a social construct um <laughs> education or, or, you know, well, furniture is a social construct. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't mean chairs aren't real or that I, I shouldn't go to my dad's funeral. You know, mm. it's, it's, just, it's just a stupid way of un- trying to undermine ideas that you, that, that you have beef with. You know, and I think people should just be more honest than, you know, that, that, about having a, having a beef with whatever it is that they have a beef with rather than saying, oh, you know, that's, we, sh- we, we should make that go away because it's a social construct because lit- literally, you know, almost, almost all of our culture... Yeah. Well, th- so I, I see it's going to be cropped out of out of the final recording, but I see you have Helen Joyce's trans book on your top shelf there. And I had a conversation with her right when that came out about what is the definition of woman. And she reduced it biologically. I'm like, that's not going to be salient. We still it's still whether we like it or not, gender is going to be invented. There's going to be social uh, meaning placed on the female and maybe your tract is correct there's no universal woman but there are cultural uh salient properties of a woman there is a british woman or a certain uh, woman in your class in your domain there's a meaning to that and so th- that's the question that i have about gender I- i'm a kind of a gender positive positivist or so i'm gender positive it's going to happen. It's going to mean something. So why don't we think about it and see how it's enjoyable, see how it's bent, broken and rearranged, but how it we're eventually going to snap back to there are some meaning. To, there's a meaning to be a man and there's a meaning to be a woman. I wonder if that's interesting to you and how that would help make the political project or the political salience of women also uh, socially uh, salient. I think one of the reasons we're arguing about all of this stuff at the moment is fundamentally because the material conditions within which men and women negotiate how best to live together are changing so quickly. Okay. Uh, an equivalent argument happened um, at the beginning of the industrial era. There was a huge amount of discourse then about about the proper relationship between men and women and the proper sphere of men and women and you know what what sex roles ought to be and so on, um, because it was all suddenly up in the air and it was being it was being negotiated in real time between people between people who had to find ways to live together um you know where the rubber hits the road is when when you when you have kids and you try and raise kids together um and how how it hits the road is is straightforwardly you know how you organize the the tasks involved in family life you know that's that's the that's the nuclear core of why why sex roles you know everything else you know a certain amount of it has to do with courtship but the nuclear core of sex roles is about how you negotiate family life and why, okay. and that's totally contextual. You know, some of it, some of it might be rooted in women, women and men's different physiologies, um, 
but 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 it's totally contextual you know and those those sex roles are going to be radically different if you live in a hunter gatherer tribe in the amazon in the amazon jungle or if you live in manhattan you know obviously they are and if you live in manhattan um, there isn't there isn't a very substantial need for sex roles full stop um, because most people do knowledge work you know which and you don't really that it makes no no meaningful difference what sex you are if you do knowledge work at least at least until one of you gets pregnant anyway knowledge but, work i haven't heard that one before well, you, you you know what I, you know if, yeah i do if you're a member of the laptop classes you know it's it's just you know what sex you are is relatively unimportant um, but if you live in the Amazon jungle or I don't, in the 1450s, it's considerably more important for, for a bunch of reasons which ought to be obvious. Um, and I think a lot of the reason why we're having these interminable, tedious arguments about gender is just because actually it's, it's a lot less important than it used to be for, for a lot of the kind of Zoom class people who are having the arguments. You know, in a sense, the Internet has cucked all of us. <laughs> There's the Mary Harrington zinger. And by that, I mean, you know, the guys who are the guys who go on about, you know, real masculinity and aesthetics and slunking eggs and whatever, you know, are still, you know, they're, they're still posting, posting first traps, you know, just like a just like an Instagram ego. Um, or a lot of them are anyway. Um, and in, in a sense, in a sense, they're not, you know, the men, the men and the women just aren't so different because they're all they're all arguing, arguing like high school girls um, in Twitter slanging matches. Mm-hmm. Um, and to the extent that everybody's just involved in this constant game of backbiting and Chinese whispers on social media, you know, we all, we, you know, the, there is no meaningful difference between the sexes anymore. Um, I mean, just to to expand on the idea that the internet has cupped all of us. Um, my my thesis is, I mean, it's observable, um, sort of fairly fairly well documented. That female aggression is much less direct than you know women. Women are just as aggressive and competitive as men, but they go about it differently. You know, Joyce Benenson is good on this. Um, you know, men men tend to be fairly overt in their competition and in forming hierarchies. And you know, when when men you know come into conflict with one another, there's a there's a higher possibility of physical violence than there would be among women. Um, but once you once you transfer all of human interaction onto the internet, you foreclose the possibility of physical violence, and and in in a sense, it means that all conflict now happens in the female key. Everybody's um, bitchy and bitching. Yeah. The internet has cucked all of us. Mm. You know, even even the guys who are being the loudest about masculinity are are still forced into the female key when it comes to fighting, as long as they're doing it online. Hmm. You know, I think I think the if if men really want to reclaim masculinity, the best way they can start doing it would be would be to log off and hang out with one another mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. And don't tell us, don't tell women about it. <laughs> Why not? I'm, a, I'm actually I'm a, I'm going to move on from that question. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, no, it was, uh, I was interested. Because, I, because I'm a big supporter of single sex spaces and I think that should, that should go for both sexes. I think it's the short answer. You know, if we, we can't very well say that, you know, women need, women need to be able to protect our, our changing rooms and um, yeah, refuges and so on from, from people who identify as women, but still have a meat and two veg. Um, unless, unless we're also going to stick our necks out and say, well, no, actually men need some single sex spaces too. Because I think I think men do, you know. There are there are. I, I have no idea what men talk about when there are no women around, but I assume there must be there must be stuff that they want to talk about when there are no women around. 
because there's definitely mm. stuff that I prefer to talk when talk about when there's no men around. So it yeah. seems likely, right? So, so, so mm. I think we could. So I, I think there's a feminist case for for bringing back all male spaces. Letting men the, go their own I, way to a certain the, uh, distance. Letting men go a certain distance their own way. <laughs> Maybe. Men going their own way to the pub with each other and then coming yeah. back. Well, one I of mean, the responses not to that... It's not a radical idea, really, when you, when you put it like that, is it? No. Well, no, I, I, I saw um, there was some discourse about... Uh, you know the, the the male kind of backlash to the female uh, protecting their own spaces kind of thing. Um, they're like, well, you took all our spaces away, and then the argument that I've seen from women is that, well, we wanted access to the halls of power because all the men were in the back rooms making all the decisions that affected everybody else. If that's, ex uh, I don't know to what extent men getting together have the power to shape society in ways that don't benefit women because they exclude women. So they're, they're, that's an open question. But with the internet, with, with transparency being as it is, so many decisions do get made in public and are uh, multi-sex discussions. And, and that's another problem that we have that's probably we're wasting a lot of bandwidth on trying to figure out these communication styles uh, between men and women and, and, uh, and then also within the online space. Yeah, I suppose the the one thing I'd say about the halls of power is that um, that's a lot of different kinds of all-male spaces sacrificed just so that a very few elite women could have an equal equal crack of the whip. Um, you know, and if you're if you're one of those elite women, I can I can completely see why you'd want to do that. But if you're if you're insisting that the cost um, that it's a it's a respect it's an acceptable trade for you having an equal crack crack at the top at the top slot, whatever that is for you. Um, at being becoming a QC or, uh, or or whatever that means for you is that effectively all single you know most single sex spaces have to be abolished because sexism um, all the way all the way down to just random guys um, somewhere in somewhere in you know Stockton on Tees who who no longer get to have their their boys club doing this that or the other um, because some barrister somewhere felt like she was felt she was a bit left out of the office chat. Um, if you look at that, you know, down through the class hierarchies, you know, I think there's a there's a tension there um, between between the needs of an elite minority and and perhaps the the needs of a of of a sexed majority. Mm -hmm. um, that's possibly a provocative thing to say when you when you when you war game out its consequences, but it's it's something to consider. Are you are are you um, in the uh frame of mind that class should be abolished or is class another thing uh classism like uh like with regard to uh emancipating woman trying to equalize the classes is just not something that's valuable fruitful or or possible i'm not not completely sure how you go about trying it i mean i, I, I don't really know I, um, they say real communism has never been tried, but it seems like it kind of has. And what what emerged was a different elite, a shadow elite, shadow yeah. class. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of a, a much more mystified elite, but everybody still knew what they were or who they were. Um, you know, and they even came. They even had a name for them. You know, the nomenclatura, who were the who who, who were the the the, the names. 
you know, the people, the people with special privileges, you know, the people, the insiders, um, you know, in the Soviet Union, they, they still had a ruling class and everybody knew it. Um, but bottom line, no, I don't think you can abolish social class. I don't think you, I don't think it's possible to not have an elite. Yeah, and pretty much the best you can hope for is a responsible elite um, that feels that feels a sense of solidarity with and obligation to um, the rest of us. Do you think that uh, Britain's done some uh, gone some way with being able to pull that off? To get back to what we were talking about about uh, what sixteen eighty eight and Comstock or whoever it was that did the thing with the other guy. Um. Yeah. I think. I'm not massively enamoured with our current ruling class. Um, I guess there's always always a sort of gap between the ideal and reality, isn't there? Um, you know, are the, the, some members, at least, of the royal family do a fairly good job of leading by example on that front. Um, you know, the, the current crop of parliamentarians you know, leave a little bit to be desired when it comes to um, showing by their actions that they feel a sense of solidarity with the rest of us. And an ob- obligation to the rest of us. Um, you know whether whether it's ever likely to get any better. I don't know, um, but I, I think in demanding that of the people who govern us is a better bet than trying to not have anyone govern us. If that makes sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, just from a sort of realist point of view. Yeah, I just I, I see the the breakdown in American politics uh, between uh, just accepting that Bezos is going to have uh, 99.9% of the money, either accepting that or demanding that nobody has more money than a certain amount. And I, I don't think that the Bernie Sanders, there should be some, it just doesn't make sense that we're going to cap wealth. But I mean, but it's the same thing with status and who is the elite, who's not the elite. We're always going to have an elite, but how porous is that elite and how distant how removed is that elite from the concerns and the livelihood of, of the commoner or the, the middle and then the lower class? And if we can get them to, to maintain dialogue, I think is a higher ideal than to pit each themselves against each other. Uh, I don't think pitting the, the classes against each other is going to be fruitful. I'm thinking unifying them is probably the better way to, to make it. Uh, that's just my... I wrote something recently about um, COVID pro- hygiene theatre or you know hygiene protocols over the last couple of years and the extent to which they've revealed social hierarchies, which were pro- have probably have been some decades in the making. Um, you know the the new class structure which has emerged in the wake of financialization and deindustrialization in to an ex- to an extent in Britain, but I much more markedly in America. And I was very struck by this when when I went to Florida. The thought was what really started me on this whole train of thought, because um, Florida, you know, it's, it's kind of mask optional or relatively mask optional as as states go, um, and and it le- it left me thinking. It, it was for, for for example all of the staff in the hotel where I was uh, wore masks all of the time, but the guests didn't, or for the guests it was optional. Um, but then. As it happened, I, I escaped one lunchtime with Chris Arnaud, who's a lovely, lovely guy, um, who took me for he took me for tacos at a dive taco place, um, just off off the kind of you know tourist land bit of of Orlando, where where normal people live and where normal people go out to eat, which is a com- completely different atmosphere, to, right exactly, 
Um, and, and nobody nobody in the restaurant there was masked. The servers were not masked, and neither were the neither, neither were the people eating. Um, and and I, I put that together with a story that came out of Ivy Getty's wedding, which you may or may or may not have crossed your radar. This is a this is the a, a descendant of John Paul Getty, you know, the oil tycoon, who's in her late twenties, I think now. And there was a big piece that was written up in Vogue about her wedding, which went on for days and was just insanely, decadently, crapulently extravagant. And, and, it, it, and there was, there's this little vignette that the story, that the write-up in Vogue, just, I mean, the, you know, IV drips for people's hangovers at the picnic after the pre-wedding party. It was just really just off off the charts. You've got to read it. Um, but but the, the detail that stuck in my mind is the moment when everyone, you know, all the, all the attendees for the wedding are, are all seated there and in San Francisco's City Hall and the bridal party sweeps in along with Nancy Pelosi who officiated the wedding and everybody ritually puts their mask on apart from the bridal party and Nancy Pelosi who did not um, and it left me thinking about you know the class you know the the status significance of Covid masks and and the way, the way in which you know who who has to mask and who doesn't in what contexts um, you know, has has come to speak very eloquently for for differences in height, for hierarchy, differences in rank, effectively, you know, between the social classes. And I, as a member of the Zoom class, um, you know, traveling to the United States, was very aware of being sometimes high status enough to be exempt from masking and sometimes not, because it just depended on the context that I was in. But I don't have enough clout. I don't I don't I'm not high enough ranked to be able to be universally exempt from masking where where a, one of the kardashians of this world absolutely would be now do, do you remember do you remember when there was that a kerfuffle on the internet because kim kardashian flew her entire family to a private island in the middle of the first lockdowns um and, and threw a big party there and she was tweeting photos from this private island and they're all sort of arms draped round one another and having a great time and in the background there's the masked staff clearing empties from the tables and it, it was it's all there you see you, you see what i'm talking about um, so, so yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're, but, but I thought a bit more about this and I thought, yeah, you can, you can see, you can see this, this very much, very much steeper sort of stratification in social class, you know, with, you know, all the, the, the kind of the people, the people who can't do, who can't work remotely are right at the bottom of the food chain and, you know, am amongst, you know, eating, eating out in, eating out amongst, amongst others of the same social class, probably nobody's going to mask. Um, but but the moment the moment somebody like that goes to work, then the whole the, the whole protocol comes into play, and that's just compulsory. It's obligatory. Um, you go a bit further up the food chain, and people are either able to kind of crazy isolate themselves and become kind of COVID maximalist neurotic types, or else you can enjoy kind of partial exemption from being masked um, when when you're in certain circumstances, like you're a guest in the hotel, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but, but on other occasions, you're, you're subject to it all again. And it's only right at the top in the 1% of the 1% that people can just kind of breeze through and that none of these regulations really impact, people, impact you at all, because you fly everywhere on your private jet. And just, just none of the normal rules apply. Mm -hmm. None of the rules that apply to everybody else really apply to you, or you can just throw money at it. Yeah. Um, this is, but, but and, and so this is, you know, ju just through just through the the mask hierarchy, you can see you can see the whole the whole sort of digital age um, class stratification just suddenly visible. Um, but it was already there, is my point. You know, it wasn't as if COVID masks made that happen. 
it, they just made it visible. You know, it was like it was like a, <laughs> like a barium meal when you go for one of those when, when, when you go for one of those scans to see to see whether there's something wrong with your insides. They make you they make you eat them. Um, like or, charcoal or, or something. Something in ultraviolet, and then the light makes it stand out. Um, they, the masking, masking kind of had that effect, and think something was visible that, that had actually been taking shape for a very long time. Hmm. Really, since the since the Reagan era, I think, since Thatcher and Reagan started started dismantling the yeomanry, or started started fully fully kind of liquefying the middle class in the interests of uh, progress or something. Mm-hmm. Growth. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Never-ending growth. So, those, so those are my those are my thoughts on on social class in the COVID era. Um, is there is there any meaningful sense in which we can disassemble elites in the context of that? No, I, I just think that's well. <laughs> if you've got an idea about where you start, uh, I'd like to hear it. I suppose. Well, it's interesting because if, uh, insofar as progressivism is a form uh, or, or a descendant of Marxism, insofar as wokeness is a descendant or a reassemblage of uh, activistic uh, morality about emancipation and equality and etc., and then that's pitted in there's a privilege and an underprivileged class, and we're going to do a bunch of work doing that. If you see what happened with that stuff, it's that the actual elite encase themselves in that they, they protected themselves by adopting it and then they get to go around and say you know michelle obama can call uh, can intimate that the poor uh drug addicted uh, virginia white kid has more privilege in a certain respect than she does right and so you and then you know with the cortez showing up with that tax the rich dress at that gala it's just it, it gets become becomes more and more glaring so i just don't know if there's any way to challenge that system by making it some sort of resentment based class politic i think that the best way to do is to try to unify all the different classes around a common humanity i don't know i don't know Uh, that's what i would like to happen but i don't know if that's sellable i don't know if that's doable um I just don't think resentment's the way to go. I think that's how it, it will be ter- torn apart. Because once the populace latches on to resentment, the elite are just going to adapt that resentment to protect themselves and have the populace tear each other apart. That's what you have. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. So, and probably the same can be uh, overlaid with the sexes. Uh, you know, a lot of what you, some of your brilliant critiques is showing how a lot of uh, feminism is, is just elite. It's, a, it's an elite game that actually shatters everything below it because it's it's about power it's not about uh finding some sort of way to live together i guess i guess i would add to that that in uh, in as much as there are there are arguments on coming from men from men and women both which boil down to thinking that all of our relations with one another should be reduced to transactions or that or that what actually what we need is the final victory of one sex over the other um i I would I would class that as also under the politics of resentment, and I would I, I would argue that that's that's never going to get us anywhere. You know, that it's not going to that, that that there's no there's no meaningful way that that kind of politics serves serves our common interests as people. And what what I like just re- returning to Erica Bakayoki's book, what I what I like immensely about her work is that she 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 won't abandon the idea that you know, in fact you know men and women are different. You know, the sexes exist. 
you know, if that's a material reality, you know, and we may have normatively different inclinations and possibly also flaws. Um, you know, we have different reproductive roles, but we, we have a common capacity for excellence and a common human dignity. And if you, if you start from that premise, then you think, well, uh, actually, you know, we, the questions we need to ask are probably about, you know, how they, they start with how can we live together, you know, given, given our, our shared and sometimes competing interests. You know, they don't start with how can I, how can I defeat those dickheads over there? Yeah. Because that's just that's just going to cause those guys over there to, to get really cross because you can, to, because you just call them a bunch of dickheads and say you know how can we how can we defeat those bitches over there and you know all of a sudden you have war and <laughs> I and they're just uh, you know welcome to welcome to the internet I mean that's ninety yeah. percent of Twitter is just men and women having that argument at the moment <laughs> it seems to me sometimes there's um, another problem I just don't with see that anything good can come of it. Yeah, uh, the, the but there's a uh, there's a downside to Bakayoki's excellent um, critique. Uh, I mean, she's she's a Catholic. One thing I don't think you have to go religion, but once you start to say, well, we have common excellence and we have common dignity, that opens up the question. Well, how can we be acting better, and how harder can we be working to maximize our own excellence and then participating um, with each other beneficially. And, and uh, one comic, I think you posted this comic. It was this, uh, it was two panels. The first panel was a bunch of people standing outside of an abortion clinic and saying, you're killing babies. And then it was the same people, but instead of a woman walking out of an abortion clinic, it was a man walking out of a uh, porn theater or something like that. And, and the, the, the backlash of those, like you're killing babies, you know? So there's this mutual respect that happens. And then this mutual calling to each other, the sexes to, to show up for each other and to sacrifice for each other. And then that, that asks a whole bunch of questions about what are we willing to give up um, to return to a more stable relationship? Um, you know, what I kind think of selfless sacrifice? We all need a haircut where it come, when on the freedom front. We all need to take a bit of a freedom haircut. We're all liberated enough. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to elaborate on that because I'm writing a whole book about it and I'm going to get absolutely, absolutely cancelled when it comes out but but i think we all need a freedom haircut Hmm. i'm gonna say about that for now well on that note then what can people look forward to you uh from you in 2022 you get more uh you're gonna do more of these uh turning point usa uh tours Uh and stuff like that Uh, i I have not done a turning point usa tour then there's that suspicious calumny and i i reject it um what am I going to do? Well, for the next six months, hopefully, hopefully that's how long it'll take me. I'm going to finish writing Feminism Against Progress. I don't know how quickly it will turn around after that in terms of whether it'll come out this year or next year. But that's that's my I'm basically saying no to any writing commissions. Uh, my New Year's resolution, apart from the unheard column or insane, insanely well, well paid commissions. And, and you're welcome, anybody who wants to send me an incredibly ridiculously well paid commission. But, you know, apart from those, I'm basically saying no to everything now until the book is done. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm absolutely, it's, I've been, I've been writing it in public in a sense for, for the last, for the best part of two years. Um, but I, I've, I've put, I've put the whole argument together and it's, it's going to be lit. I'm really excited about it. So actually, I just want to get my head down and write that. And when that comes out, then I'm going to get royally cancelled, which I'll either enjoy, I'll either love or hate, or maybe a mixture of both. Um, I don't know. I guess you know, I, I'll, I'll be, I'll be around on podcasts. You know, the column's still there, unheard. Um, but but that's priority number one. Just get the book done. 
Any uh, high points in your uh, internet life for the past uh, couple of years then, since you came out as a feminist against progress or? <laughs> I don't know, the, the whole thing's been brilliant to be honest. I mean, it's, yeah. um, I've, I've, I've had the, had this crazy opportunity to just write absolutely loads, loads of stuff, which has given me a chance to work through my ideas and meet, meet interesting, meet some, some fascinating people and have superb conversations like this one. It's, 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 it's been, an, it's been a wild ride so far. I'm kind of, I'm, I, I don't really know what's going to happen next, but I, hmm. I just feel like I have to remain deadly calm and carry on writing stuff. With regard to the book, is it, uh, you have a argument, is it going to be kind of a treatise or are you going to have a lot of, uh, anecdote or, or, uh, historical? You, you, you're, you're from, you've, you've read a few of my pieces, you know, they're okay. usually yeah. a mix of, mix of contemporary stuff and, you know, yeah. a bit of, a bit of history, a bit of, a bit of materialism, a bit of literature and a bit of me and just kind of stir that up and try and try and make it, try and make it not too dry. That's yeah. usually, usually what I'm aiming for. And I'm, I'm hope it's hopefully going to be kind of that vibe, I guess. Genre smashing, just like the postmodernist. Uh... <laughs> well, not really. Actually, lots of people write like I do now. But yeah, kind of, yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of theory, but I, I want it to be, I want it to be nice to read as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it, you know what? Um, you are a startling thinker. I always enjoy your work, and you were actually requested to come back on my show. So you have a, a roving fan base or a raving fan base out there. It's, well, well, hello, hello, Benjamin's Benjamin's guys and girls. It's thank you, thank you for watching me back. It's been great.